Thank you for worshiping King Jesus uh, with us this morning. Today we're going to continue through the book of Acts. We've got Children's Church as well, uh, departing that way. And the rest of us will be talking about this morning a sovereign and generous God, a sovereign and generous God. But before we do, let me pray for us one more time. Father, we uh, are grateful to be here this morning, and I thank you for every brother and sister that you have brought here today. Lord, we have sung of the victory, God, that we have in you, that you have indeed delivered us um, from sin, death, and the grave. Lord, that you have forgiven us of all of our trespasses, God, that, that the penalty for sin, God, no longer holds sway over our lives, but that we have been set free from sin, that we might live to God. And so, Lord, I pray this morning uh, that you would help us, Lord, uh, incline our hearts and minds to you. We have rendered to you a sacrifice of praise of our lips. And Lord, now let us offer to you the sacrifice of our hearts, Lord. As we sit under your word, Lord, may we be sensitive to what your spirit has to say. God, convict us of any sin in, heart, in, our, in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, even as we prepare, God, for the Lord's Supper um, uh, after, uh, towards the end of this service, God, I pray that we would partake of your body and your blood um, with clean hands, God, and a pure heart. So, Lord, speak to us today. God, transform us by your Spirit. Empower us, Lord, to live lives uh, that love you, that love people, and that make disciples. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I do want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4 this morning. Um, if, you don't, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you, don't want, if you don't have one at home, I invite you to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. But for several weeks now, we have been walking through uh, the book of Acts, uh, which has been really encouraging to me and, and uh, I, I know to all of us as well. We have seen how in recent weeks... Um, going through the book of Acts, how Peter and John healed this lame beggar, right, uh, outside uh, at the beautiful gate outside the temple courts, okay, and it, it, it created this amazing opportunity because everybody knew who this man was. It created this amazing opportunity to preach the gospel, to proclaim in Jesus the forgiveness of sins. And, and, and we know that Jesus is alive because he healed this lame beggar that they all saw well. And so, they are arrested at that point, and Peter and John are then threatened by the highest Jewish, Jewish authorities to no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus. But them seeing the healed man right beside them and all the crowds around, uh, and, and they, they weren't really able to do anything more drastic than that at that time other than charge them to not preach in the name of Christ. And yet, Peter and John are filled with the Spirit and they said that they must listen to God rather than to men. And so today we see this final scene uh, that's precipitated uh, by this event, uh, by this event of the healing of the lame beggar and then the arrest of, the, of Peter and John. We see this final scene uh, precipitated by this event and, their, and the response of the Christian community to the first um, serious opposition to this new Christian movement. And their response to opposition is a lesson to us all. They prayed. 
they prayed. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is we talk about a sovereign, generous God. Um, uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name, through, uh, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was, called, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The word of God. You may be seated. Okay, so we're going to talk about a sovereign, generous God under two headings this morning. Number one, prayer. Prayer, which is confidence and courage in a sovereign God. And then number two, generosity, which is confidence and courage in a generous God. So prayer, confidence and courage in a sovereign God, and generosity, confidence and courage in a generous God. First, we're going to talk about prayer, confidence and courage in a sovereign God. Okay, so, so here we are in the book of Acts. All right? The Spirit has fallen, as Jesus said it would. They, the, at Pentecost, they spoke in unlearned languages. The gospel was proclaimed. Thousands of people got saved. Uh, Peter and John enter into the beautiful gate of the temple. They healed this man who was born lame from birth, who was over 40 years old. An obvious miracle. He'd probably begged at that gate for decades. Everybody knew who he was. They saw him walking, jumping, leaping, praising God because the healing power of Jesus had come upon him. They preached the gospel. Thousands more people get saved. It causes a stir in the temple courts. They get arrested and they get charged not to preach in the name of Jesus. And so now, now we have happening to the apostles what Jesus said that what, what Jesus told them would happen to them. And I think this is important to remember because Jesus warned them regularly and often about the opposition that they were going to face if they were going to be obedient to him and proclaim in him the, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead. And we see an, a great example of this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 and following. 
Jesus told them, he said, Behold, I am sending you out uh, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and as, and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when you obey me, when you follow me, when you tell people who I am, what I came to do, there are going to be some people out there that's not going to like it. Okay, And we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. And we've been talking a lot about that recently, and we'll keep talking more about it because I do think that in the prosperous, prosperous America where we live healthy, wealthy, and blessed compared to any other part in the world, if you've traveled, you know what I'm talking about, we, get, we, we, we live lives so comfortably, so easy, and, and, and we're not used to being opposed for what we believe. And I just want to say, buckle up, okay? And if you're not comfortable of somebody thinking poorly of you because you follow Jesus, how are you going to stand when real persecution happens? And so this is what's happening. When you, if you follow Jesus perfectly, that does not mean everyone will like you. And I think there's a lot of pressure today because as Christians, human beings in general, and I think even Christians in particular, we want people to like us. We don't want people not to like us. But Jesus, but the, Jesus was basically telling him, look, if you proclaim the gospel that we are in fact sinners that need God's mercy and that God sent that mercy in his son Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who rose from the dead so that through faith in Jesus we can be forgiven of our sins, be filled with the Spirit, be transformed from the inside out and live bold lives for him. Jesus came to deal with our greatest problem. When you proclaim that, that, you need Je- that you're a sinner that needs Jesus just like everyone else, people, some people aren't going to like that. But this is the question. Why should we be exempt for suffering from Christ? Why should we be exempt from suffering for Christ? What makes us special? Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they did this to me, what are they going to do to you? He said, he said if they did this while, while, uh, while, the wood is dry, uh, while the wood is green, what are they going to do when it's dry? Right? For 2,000 years, Christians have been suffering for Jesus, and we're not special. All right? That's the, there's a song we sing, uh, the old rugged cross, right? Um, uh, we'll, but one day it says that we'll exchange that cross for a crown. But until the day of the crown comes, we have to carry the cross. That's how it works, right? We're not exempt from suffering, and we should not be surprised by suffering. So with this perspective and with this in mind, the apostles, when they preach the gospel, they're not surprised when they face opposition, right? And, and what do they do? Well, they, when, when, when this takes place and they are released and they report back to the church what had happened to them, what they do, what the church does is pray. They pray because prayer is our greatest weapon against spiritual opposition. Prayer is our greatest weapon against spiritual opposition. Are you facing some kind of challenge in your life? All right? Spiritual challenges, emotional challenges, relational challenges, 
uh, health, physical challenges. My, the question that all of us should be asking is, are we praying? How can we, how can we let something burden us down and just, and just maybe even cripple us physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, when we have the sovereign king of the universe and we haven't even prayed to him about it yet? We have to pray, right? Prayer is our greatest weapon against spiritual opposition. When they, when they were arrested and when the opposition began to increase against the early Christian community, the first thing they did was pray. And they prayed. This is a, one of these, I would say, one of the most important prayers in Scripture. And it's, it's a key prayer in this early church in the book of Acts about how they responded to this persecution. And so we're going to look at their prayer, and I think what the primary probably and the, the, the thematic element of this prayer is, is I think, fat, captured in the way that they address God in the very first words of the prayer in verse 24. They call God the Sovereign Lord. That's their title for God in their prayer. So the first words out their mouth are Sovereign Lord. They're addressing God as Sovereign Lord. The Greek word there is despotes, which is where we get our English word despot, which in English is a very negative word, but in Greek it's not a negative word, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a, it's a neutral word. It means someone who possesses absolute authority, right? So someone who possesses absolute authority could be good or could be bad. In God's case, it's obviously good, but it, it means that God is the sovereign Lord, that he possesses absolute authority. The Net Bible translates the word, translate that, that word master of all. God is the master of all. He is the sovereign Lord. They are praying to God because he is the sovereign Lord who did what? Who created the heavens and the earth, the sea, they say, and everything that is in them. They pray to God because God is the sovereign Lord. If God isn't the sovereign Lord, why would you pray to him? Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? If God isn't in control of your situation, what good is it going to do to pray to him? But if God is in total control of any and every situation, including your situation, guess what? It does a lot of good to pray to him. Because then he actually has the power and the authority to intervene in any and every situation in which you find yourself. That's why we pray to God, right? If God is the sovereign master of all, what better thing can you do than to pray? There's literally nothing better than you can do. If you have access if you, if, if you and me right now have access to the one who can, literally, who can literally lift up and throw down nations and rulers and people, who can calm the sea with the word, who can create the universe with a single word, and if we can talk to him, and if he listens to us, why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we pray? And so we pray because God is the sovereign Lord. And so they, they, and they, so they pray to God. And then what do they do? They present their prayer to God through the lens of Scripture, right? If you want to learn to pray, the first thing to do is just pray, and the second thing to do is read your Bible. Because one of the most powerful ways to pray is to pray Scripture, because you, you, then you never have to wonder, if you're praying God's own words back to God, you never have to wonder if you're doing it right. God loves His Word, right? It's like, it's like saying, hey, God, look, you said this. I want you to do this. What's God going to tell you? No. It's His Word. God's good on His Word. So read the Scripture. Pray the Scripture. And they pray through the lens, in this, in this case, of Psalm 2, which is one of the most important 
what we call messianic psalms in the Bible. And so let me just read to you, and it should be on the screen there, the first uh, eight verses of Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits up in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. All right? What is that? That's Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. It's a Davidic psalm. And if, you, if you've read that psalm before, it's very interesting because it's almost like, it's almost like David, in writing this psalm, kind of like is having like a vision of like the heavenly throne room. And in this heavenly throne room, we have God, the king, and he's, he's talking to this Davidic figure, right? This, this God's king who he's going to, who he's going to uh, give authority over the peoples and over the nations, right? But the people are going to oppose the Lord's anointed, all right? He calls him the Lord's anointed. They're going to oppose him, saying, let's burst his bonds apart. Let's cast, in other words, we're not going to submit to God's anointed king, all right? But God, it says, he said, God uh, holds them in derision, right? Um, he says, I will tell of the decree, to, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so it's a, it's a Davidic psalm and it's referring to God's anointed. Well, in the Greek, the word anointed there is Christos, which of course is the Greek word, which is where we get the word Christ. So in case you didn't, in case you forgot, right, Jesus, Christ is not Jesus' last name, all right? It's a title. It means anointed one. When we call Jesus the Christ, we're calling him the anointed one and from many places, but including the anointed one of Psalm 2. Jesus is the Lord's anointed one whom God has given to rule the nations, and they will bow down to him, but some people will oppose him, okay? And it won't, it won't turn out well for them, all right? But crucially, these believers, when they're praying through this psalm to God, they see in Psalm 2 a picture of what is happen of what both happens to Jesus and what is happening and what is happening to them. All right? And they see then in the psalm that where it says the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. They see in the psalm that opposition was predicted by God, right? They could look at the psalm and say, "Hey, look, all the way back in Psalm 2 when that was written by David a thousand years before Jesus was born, we already knew that there was going to be opposition." So we're not we're not surprised, right? And so what does that mean? It means that our suffering for Jesus is part of the plan. It means our suffering for Jesus is part of the plan. Because Jesus is sovereign, we pray. And because God is sovereign, then whatever challenges we face, we can know that they are part of God's plan, right? That, that, it may seem counterintuitive, but I want to tell you that that's good news and not bad news. See, a lot of people, I think, want to get God off the hook and say, you know, oh, you know, God, you know, God, you know this, is, this is the devil. This ain't God. Well, the devil has stuff to do with stuff, too. Don't get me wrong. But let me tell you something. If God's not in control of the good and the bad, we're in big trouble. Right? Because guess what? If God, if God is just up there in heaven and he's looking down at even the hard things we face in life and he's looking down and he feels sorry for us, but he can't help us, 
we're in big trouble, right? But, but if God looks down and he says, and he says, yes, I know that you're suffering. I know you're going through a hard time, but hold on. It's part of the plan. Well, that changes everything, right? We know it's part of the plan because what? Because Jesus suffered and everything Jesus did was part of the plan, right? God brings good out of suffering. That's what God does, right? If Jesus didn't suffer, we'd all go to hell, so guess what? So if God it calls you to go through suffering as his follower, and it's going to happen to all of us, then guess what? God's going to work some good for that, even if you can't see it yet. And that changes the way that you suffer. Because now we don't lose hope, we don't despair, we don't give in, right? We can say, God, if this suffering is for you, I'm going to bear it in faith and trust and obedience. And I'm going to hold on to you, and you're going to hold on to me. It changes the way we suffer, and that's what, it, that's what it's about, right? And so, and so our suffering for Jesus is part of the plan. That's what, that's what he wants us to see here. And so notice here that up until this point, right, they called God the sovereign Lord. They interpreted their circumstances through the lens of Scripture, which is what we should do. And notice at this point, they actually haven't asked for anything. So when we get to verses 29 and 30, we finally get to where they actually start asking for things, all right? And so what do, what do they ask for? They ask for God to look upon their threats, verse 29, and to grant their servant, grant your servants, which is them, right, to continue to speak the word with boldness while, he, while God continues to stretch out his hands by working miracles through them. So, so, so what did they ask God for in the midst of the, the opposition that they're facing, right? He asked them for God to see what's happening and to grant them to continue to proclaim Christ with boldness and with the power of the Holy Spirit as demonstrated through miracles. So listen to, listen to this. Notice what they didn't ask God for. They didn't, ask God, they didn't pray for God to change their circumstances. They prayed for God to change them. They didn't pray for God to change their circumstances. They prayed for God to change them. You know, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. But when we go through a hard time, one of the first things we do is say, God, you got to take me out of this. you got to change my situation. But in this case, what they did when they, when they, when, when they were put in a hard situation, they didn't, they didn't pray for God to change the situation. They prayed for God to change them. God, make me, they're opposing us for our boldness for Christ. You know what, God, make me even bolder. Make me even bolder. Make me even more obedient. Make me even more courageous. Change me. That, what is that? That's faith. It's trust that what's happening to us isn't an accident and that God works good out of evil. And in fact, as Jesus said, there's a reward for suffering for him. And so rather than take them out of the situation, they prayed God to change them in the situation. And most of the time, that's what God wants to do. And he confirmed their prayers. He confirmed their prayers by shaking the room in which they were, filling them fresh with the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, at the end there in verse 31, it says, they continue to speak the word of God with all boldness. In other words, God answered their prayer. God answered their prayer. They weren't ashamed and they weren't afraid. And that's what the devil wants to use in your life. He wants to use shame, and he wants to use fear. Shame and fear to keep you from doing what God has told you to do. But when you pray, things change. 
when you pray, God changes you. So what, do we, so what should we do? Let our prayers reflect the prayers of these early saints. Let us not be too quick. Let us not be too quick to ask God to take us out of circumstances, but let's, let's be sensitive to the Spirit to ask God how He may want to use us in the midst of our circumstances to make a difference for Him. Prayer is what? It's confidence and courage in a sovereign God. We pray because we have confidence and we have courage in a sovereign God, number one. Number two is generosity. Generosity is what? It's confidence and courage in a generous God. It's confidence and courage in a generous God. We see this in verses 32 and following there towards the end of chapter 5, uh, uh, from, from that point to the, to the, uh, to the end of chapter 4, sorry. In, in, and so in 32, right, it says that they were, the number who believed were of one heart and soul, Great power was given to the apostles. There was not a needy person among them, verse 34, all right? People who had possessions, and as they saw needs, they were selling their possessions and laying it at the apostles' feet, okay, uh, providing for those in need. And in fact, uh, the, 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 a great example of this, and we, we are introduced here to the, the person of Barnabas, who becomes important later in the book of Acts, whose name means son of encouragement, and he sold possessions and laid his money at the apostles' feet. So as we, as we, so this, so this part kind of ends this this story. All, all of the events that have been precipitated uh, by the healing of the lame beggar at the beautiful gate. Okay, and so this kind of begin, begins to bring this this part of the this kind of story to a close, right? And so we saw earlier um, in the in the book of Acts how when the Spirit fell at Pentecost, right? People saw the miracle. Peter stood up in the power of the Holy Spirit. It provided an opportunity to proclaim Christ, all right? And multitudes of people got saved. And then after that, in Acts chapter 2, we, see, we saw an earlier summary where, Peter, uh, where Luke excuse me, summarizes the, 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 the fellowship and the generosity that those early Christians had. And we talked about that earlier in a sermon called The Fellowship of the Saints. Well, we see a similar picture here where after, this, after these events unfold and an opportunity to proclaim the gospel has taken place and a bunch of people get saved, Luke once again kind of gives us another summary of what this Christian community, this early Christian community was like. And we see again here that, that what Luke tends to emphasize, one of his emphases is that their shared faith especially led to the sharing of material possessions for the meeting of one another's needs, right? He said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And in fact, Luke goes so far as to say that there was not a needy person among them. Now again, as I've said before, I just think that this is remarkable because the, the, the Jews, of course, highly prized generosity and, and, and uh, uh, offer, get, giving, uh, giving gifts to poor people to help them. They believe God saw that and understood that and, and rewarded that. And, of course, Christians are no different. All right? But the fact that we see it on such a radical scale, if you will, within the Christian community, I think was a bold witness to the broader community of saying, oh, look at what's going on there. Because, and, and how much more of a witness is that in our world now, where, let's just be honest, we live in an unbelievably materialistic society. All right? Unbelievably materialistic society. You know, 
most of us in this room have more stuff than most people in the world could ever hope to have in their entire life. Right? If you go to other parts of the world. All right? And it's so, and, and the truth is, is Jesus taught a lot about possessions because we are very tempted. The more you have, the, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? The more stuff you have, the more your heart is bound up in your stuff, right? You, you, we've, we've heard that expression, right? Somebody, they got nothing to lose, right? Well, guess what? When you got nothing to lose, then you're free, right? You, it doesn't matter what someone takes away from you because you ain't got nothing to take away, and so in a strange way, there's freedom there. I don't think he's, I don't think he's necessarily saying we, 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 we're not to have anything, but I'm saying that they're, they're, with, with faith and trust in Christ, there becomes a legitimate freedom from the need to just have more and more. Because a lot of us, why, what do we do? We, we hoard and we save things, and there's some, there's some prudence to that, but let's just be honest. We can save because we find security in our savings rather than in God. If, if everything that you had burnt to the ground and the stock market crashed and all, your, and all your retirement savings was lost, would you still trust God? Would you trust that he would provide for you and take care of you? That's an important question to ask, right? When, when these people, when they saw needs in their community, they said, you know what? That person's need is greater than my need for more stuff. And so they sold their, their possessions and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, of course, at this point in the early church, right, the apostles represent the authority of Christ. They are his chosen leaders of the early church. And so to lay it at the apostles' feet was basically to lay it at Jesus' feet, right? And so what's the point? The point is, is that all of our possessions really belong to Jesus and should be surrendered to his will, right? You know, we, and we, we all do this, but maybe we should change. Maybe we should change the way we speak about stuff. We, I, maybe I should stop saying I'm going, I'm going to my house. Maybe I should say I'm going to Jesus' house that he lets me live in. I'm going to hop in Jesus' car that he lets me drive around. Because it's not mine, it's Jesus. And so, you know, if, 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 you know, we got some foster parents in the room over here, if there's kids who need a home, I should say, I should at least be open to the idea of saying, you know what, this isn't my home, this is Jesus' home. I should not just ask, what do I want to do with my home? I should ask, what, Je- what does Jesus want me to do with his house? Maybe he wants some kids in here. What does Jesus want me to do with his car that he lets me ride around in? It's a different way of looking at the world. It's seeing that our possessions belong to Jesus and should be surrendered to his will. Luke says that there was not a needy person among them. I think, I think there's a deep theological connection that's being made there to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, right, Israel was supposed to be a picture. In the Old Testament, they were supposed to be a picture of God's ideal community. Of course, they kind of blew that over and over again. But the point was is that's who they were supposed to be. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, it, said, it says, But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Of course, there he's talking about if, if you obey me, right? In other words, he's saying, if you obey me, if you keep my law, then, then I will eradicate poverty from your midst. That, what a promise. What a promise, right? If you obey me, I will eradicate poverty from your midst. And of course, right, if you read through the laws, right, Many of the laws had to do with, would, had to do with poverty, right? Um, if you owned a field, okay, you weren't, supposed to, you weren't supposed to just strip it bare, all right, 
and you want you were supposed to get your just a regular harvest, all right? There'd be some left over. You weren't supposed to get the gleanings, and then you were supposed to leave your field for poor people to come in so that they could get something to eat. So lots of these laws are, were designed around how to help those who are needy within the community. And, and, and the point is, is they weren't supposed to worry about that. In other words, you don't get over greedy, right? You don't need that extra bit. God will take, in other words, when you think God will take care of you, you don't have to squeeze every penny out of everything you do in life. You don't have to. Be generous. Be free. Help other people because God's going to take care of you. And that's what Jesus is saying. And, when, and when, so when Luke says here that there was no needy among them, I think he's kind of pointing back and he's saying, look, the church is taking up, the church is becoming what Israel was supposed to be. This is the true people of God that now have what Israel didn't have, and that is the Holy Spirit. And where a community of people genuinely have the Holy Spirit, God is going to do what he said they were, he was going to do and that is uh, remove the needy from among them. And that's what happens in this early Christian community, right? And so this is the clear evidence of what? Of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their midst. It's, it's, it's what happens when these earliest b- believers of Jesus took Jesus seriously when, uh, in, in the things that he taught, right? We remember the story of the rich young ruler, Right, And you remember the story of the rich young ruler. It says there in that story that Jesus loved him. Jesus, Jesus looked at that young man and he loved him. But there was one thing that that young man lacked. And that is that his, his wealth had a stranglehold on his heart. He couldn't let it go. Even to follow Jesus. And so when Jesus said, sell it, give to the needy, come follow me, he turned around and walked away. In another place, Jesus warned against stirring up, storing up wealth for ourselves in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. It says, he told them a parable, saying that the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Retire. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When you die, everything, (laughs) when you die, guess what? You leave everything behind. Everything. Now just think about that. Because what do we do? What do we do? We work, we work, we work. To have, to have, to have, only so that in the end, we lose it. Right? We lose it. Did you know, did you know that there is actually a way to keep treasure forever? Do you know how to do that? 
Be generous. Be generous. Store up, Jesus said what? He said, store up treasure in heaven. How do you do that? By being generous, by giving, by giving to God, by meeting the needs of other people as an act of faith and obedience to God. Generosity, whatever we keep for ourselves, we will lose. Whatever we give away for Jesus' sake, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like uh, putting it a stamp on it and sending it on a forward to heaven. Guess what? It'll be waiting for you when you get there. That's the only way. That's the only way to keep. That's the only way to keep. So, do, so what does it mean? It means be free. God wants to set us free. Just like we see in this early community, God wants us to be free to be generous. He wants us to be free to be generous. I'm going to say, I'm going to say the word here. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say it. Tithe. It's a scary word. I rarely ever talk about tithing. In my five and a half years of preaching as part of this church and Cottonwood Baptist Church, I don't think I've ever preached an entire sermon devoted to tithing. But I'm just going to say it. The church throughout most of Christian history, and especially in the Western world throughout most of the history in, the, in, in Western civilization, the church has lived through, through the tithe. The tithe means 10%, which means giving 10% of your income to the local church and to the ministry of the local church. That's how Liberty Lit survived. That's how Cottondale survived. That's how Hillside survived. They not just survived, but that's how we thrive. That's how we, that's how we give. That's one of the ways in which we give to God. And that, the reason why we, we tithe is because in the Old Testament, right, God commanded the Jews to tithe. The word tithe, again, means 10%. Why did they tithe? They tithe as an act of faithfulness to God. It was an act of trust, right? It was an act of saying, God has given me 100%, so I'm going to surrender back to him 10% as an act of gratitude and as, as an act of faith, right? Remember, the, remember in the wilderness they had the manna, but they were only allowed to connect, collect enough manna for one day because if they collect for two, it would, it would become rotten and stink. Why? Because God is saying that you have to wake up every day and trust me. That just as I provided for you yesterday, I'm going to provide for you today. Well, that's what tithing is. It's an act of faith. It's, yes, it takes discipline. Yes, it takes sacrifice. Yes, yes, it's going to cut into some of our luxuries in life. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. If God gives, guys, if God gives us 100%, how can we not give him back some? You tracking with me? God is a generous God. I mean, we only, keep, we only keep what we send ahead by giving. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want myself, I don't want you to be paupers in heaven because we kept it all to ourselves here. So let's be free. Let's learn to be free. Let's take some sacrifice. You know what? I can cut that out because I want to give a little bit more to God. I can, I can squeeze a little bit more here because I want to be able to help more people over there. That's not natural. It's supernatural. It's, it's an act of faith saying, you know what? I want to keep, keep by sending ahead, by being generous for God. That's what we see in this early church. That's what we see in this early community. And that's what God has done for us. That's what God has done for us. We're, we can be generous to God because God has been generous to us. And I'm not even talking about money. I'm not even talking about house. I'm not even talking about food. God gave us his son. God has been more generous than we could possibly imagine. He's given us his son. 
to deal with our greatest problem, our sin, that when we rebelled against him, he made a way for rebels and sinners like me and like you to be forgiven and brought back into his family. Look, guys, God owns it all. We are children of God. When we get to heaven, look, there's nothing he's going to keep from us. When you're, when you're da- when you're, when your daddy is the richest man in town, you're good to go. You tracking with me? So we can be free to be generous for him. Let's pray. King Jesus, Lord, how generous you are. You gave yourself for us, even though we don't deserve it. And in fact, Lord, if that's, if that's all you ever did, it would be more than enough for us to praise you and worship you forever. But on top of that, Lord, you just give and give and give. You put food on our table. You put a roof over our head. God, you bless us with comforts and luxuries that, we, that are just frankly unfathomable. God, guard us from putting too much hope in this world. Guard us from trusting in our stuff. God, let us be free. Free to serve him who feeds the birds of the air, who clothes the lilies of the valley. How much more will you take care of us? So God set us free this morning. And Lord Jesus, I pray that maybe somebody, there's maybe someone in this room who hasn't truly experienced the transforming generosity of Christ. They need your forgiveness. They need to turn from their sins and trust in you and receive the greatest possible gift that has ever been given. God, I pray that you would help them receive it this morning by turning from their sins and trusting in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.